Well, as we gather for corporate worship and uh, as we have the little ones in here with us in pre-service, pre-worship, whatever for their time scale, um, we're always looking at trust as parents, as we worship with our little ones, looking for, um, again, to share in, I should say, the Lord's uh, building of the house, that uh, we rejoice in His work in their little lives as we disciple them or shepherd them through the process of God's people gathered in corporate worship. And as I was uh, singing with my son this morning, I thought we were going to share a significant moment and a real blessing for me as a father and seeing the Lord raise up a house. Uh, We were singing, Lord, you just uh, and you justify, you're just and you justify. Uh, And uh, my son was singing with me, and he turned at the end of the song and said, you know, I knew that song, uh, that part about you, you're just, and you justify, and I said, oh, the Lord is raising up a house, and he says, I think I heard it on Mulan, <laughs> I thought, you know, there's little moments, little moments that pace yourself as a parent, they come little moments. So, we'll have to explain just and justify apart from the movies at some point, I guess. As we then draw our time together as a church family around the text of Ruth, I will draw your attention once more to consider the irony that we explored last week, the irony that is at work in this text that colors the entire narrative. We don't want to get carried away in etymology, that is, we don't want to get too bogged down into parsing out words and verbs and nouns and their relationships to where it begins, to where we see, indeed, every little detail that we think is to be seen, and we miss the entire forest. There's a danger in breaking down words too far. Yet there is, at that same point, in our exegesis or in our homework, there is a need to recognize where the author is strategically interplaying in between words and their relationships, interplay between terms, names, and their relationship of how the Lord is at work in those names, in those people and circumstances. Two that we looked at last week was simply one, Bethlehem, that I don't think is an overreach, but I think it's critical to the development of the narrative. It colors the entire narrative. The entire thing is, as we recall, Bethlehem being the house of bread. That is no small detail. It is significant as we learn of uh, two Israelites or a family. I should say Elimelech is really the, the, the first and foremost of scene number one as he chooses to leave the house of bread to the plains of Moab or to Moab in order to find sustenance. That's critical as we recognize where Israel is in their covenantal relationship with God. The house of bread has gone empty. Another one is that of what I mentioned, the dark irony here is we're looking at the story in its dark providence, and that is Elimelech. We noted, again, if we were to consider the etymology of Elimelech, And names being significant in the Old Covenant ministry, in the family of God. His name is certainly from a faithful family. My God is King. 
And we recognize by the end of a very short text, verses 1 through 5 of the opening narrative of this bleak story at this point, and a sad outlook if we were to be or pretend to be at this point original readers, we recognize in five verses Elimelech is dead. So the house of bread, that is the place of sustenance at the heart of the land for God's people, is empty. Elimelech, whose name means, as he leads his family, my God is king, is dead. One last note as we move forward in the irony of Naomi. Naomi means my pleasant one. And certainly as we begin as a family of four going into Moab, by the end of verse 5, we're a family of one. And it is Naomi who stands in anything but a pleasant set of circumstances. Don't allow the dark irony to be missed because we can scurry through the text too quickly and not share in the situation or appreciate its development and therefore miss the depth of both human grief and hardship and God's solution and provision to it. The question I left you with last week, uh, for those of you who were able to be with us in the introduction of Ruth, or Ruth 1 through 5, is now going to be slowly answered. The question at the end of our introduction, as we ended in verse 5, is the question regarding Naomi, and I posed it to you as well. Naomi is facing, in these tragic circumstances, a question of her faith. Will Naomi respond in faith? to such tragic circumstances. Where my God is king is now dead, and Naomi is alone. Again, we begin in the narrative following Elimelech, making a choice for his family that we cannot pass judgment on necessarily with absolute certainty for sure. We cannot cast judgment on Elimelech's choice to go down to Moab. The narrator narrator leaves it out. We don't know how to interpret exactly, precisely Elimelech's choice. But either way, Elimelech has passed off the scene. It's Naomi now who stands in the center of the stage. And the question now is not surrounding Elimelech. The question now surrounds Naomi. Notice it with me in verse 5. So that the woman, this is after the death of her sons. This is the emphasis of the center stage. So that the woman, again a point of emphasis, not simply Naomi, but the woman. And we rehearsed that last week considering the plight that now befalls a woman in such circumstances in a foreign land. And, and so, again, don't miss, it's not Naomi was left with that. It's the woman. Th- this situation is dire. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You see, the author's intention for you, the reader, both through literary subtleties that you have to notice the details when the details are to be noticed. A careful reading of the text. Noticing his work. 
with this irony, with this interplay, is that through literary subtlety and bold circumstances, the woman is alone, is to confront you, the reader. The writer is confronting you. The reader, with your own heart, you say, no, I'm looking at verse 5, and it's Naomi who is alone. I'm reading about someone else. I'm simply observing what's taking place in someone's life. That's not the strategy of the writer. In other words, he doesn't want you to cast judgment upon Naomi. No, I, I'm going I'm to jump in, I'm going to notice what she did wrong, and I'm going to observe, and I'm going to be able to see from a distance. No, no, the role of the reader is not to cast judgment upon Naomi, nor is it for us to speak for Naomi. Naomi, you should... Oh, I, I'm noticing what I'm going to not... I'm going to make sure I... Don't cast judgment upon Naomi. The reader is grabbing you and confronting you. In other words, the writer says, enter into her shoes as a fellow heir in Christ, as one of the people of God who serves the same covenantal king. Enter into her shoes So in other words, how is he asking me to do so? He is asking you this very pointed question as we ask it of Ruth. He's asking you. What are your expectations of God in the events of your life? The woman is alone. What is she going to do? Let me ask you, what are you going to do? Or, or maybe we should phrase it that way. When I say to you, what are your expectations of God in the events of your life? Maybe that's what the writer is directly confronting us with. And we hear it in the words of Christ, of course. Do you think of life in possessive terms? Is it your life? The woman is alone. What is she going to do? What are you going to do? What would you do? I would ask each one of us as we consider to examine the life of Ruth as we enter into her shoes, as we are led by the author so to do. I ask each one of us to consider, is God's activity in your life? Or I share in that, I would say, in God's activity, is God's activity in our lives the work of an unwelcomed guest? 
a sort of divine intrusion. Are we the star of our own screenplay as we establish and write our own story? And we choose which characters we allow in and we assign to them the part they play. Is God in a supporting role in the screenplay of our lives? We assign him a role. He needs to hit his mark on time. In order for us to really be seen the stars that we are. Given that each one of us in this room shares in the hardships of life simply by being alive. And we share in the disappointments of life. The woman is alone. Each one of us can identify with Naomi. Some perhaps on a more severe scale in the moment than others. Some with a darker providence in the clouds that indeed have gathered that are darker, more dark than others. Yet many of us, through trial and so forth, arrive at this point where indeed we'll face others and perhaps they will be just as dark as those that we've shared with others around us. Either way, each one of us can identify with Naomi facing deep questions of our faith toward God. And this morning, as we don't judge Naomi or cast judgment in a way so as to speak for Naomi or explain where Naomi went wrong, but we enter into Naomi's shoes as the people of God in reading of the text, as the author asks us, what are your expectations? No, Naomi, should, no, I'm asking you. The re, I'm, I, I stopped short in five to confront you. Ask the same question that you're asking of Naomi. I'm doing it in a way to prompt you to ask. What are your expectations of God? Is he welcome? Does he run your show? Or do you run your show? This morning, we begin to answer that question for Naomi. The question that we asked at the end of our time yesterday, and that is quite simply, will Naomi maintain that the God of Israel is her king as she begins to respond to God's heavy hand of providence? And please, don't short the providence. It is heavy. Without rehearsing, we simply say, Naomi is an incredible set of difficult circumstances. And she is facing some very powerful questions. So we join with Naomi at the center of the stage. First, we begin is uh, this episode would be most likely labeled, if we were to label the episode that is opening in verse 6, is the return, or Naomi's return to Bethlehem. How do we know that it is so saturated with this thought of return? Well, if you notice with me in the text, we're going to cover all of six Uh, through the rest of the chapter, centering upon Naomi, and then we'll recognize Ruth 
um, next time we're together. But this time is, as it's so constructed, Naomi is at the center. So we don't want to skip to Ruth. But notice what Ruth is doing. First, notice what Naomi is doing and going through. This is the episode of the return for Naomi. If you were to consider with me looking at the text, the word return or turn shows up eight different times in verses 6 through 22. That is, the return or turn or turn back or to go away or to return back and to go. That is, the thematic word return occurs eight times. Now, we know the direction of the text, the narrative set up, they're leaving and they're going to Moab. Now the episode shifts after tragedy, and they're returning. So now we're watching the, the flow of the narrative, pivots, and they're going back. So what are we to make of Naomi in the going back of Bethlehem? The first thing that we see, we're going to see a couple of things here regarding Naomi as she's being developed as a character, yet again, not in judgment, but in entering into the narrative together. The first thing we witness about Naomi is that she has the presence of an abiding faith. How do we know so? After this tragedy, how will Naomi respond? What do we know to be of her case facing this tragedy? What will she do? Well, notice with me in verses 6 and 7. We notice about Naomi right at the turn is that she does have an abiding faith or faith is present. How so? Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. So there you're going to follow. She acts. She arose, returned, and at the beginning of verse 7, she set out. So these three verbs here control the movement. She is out of here. Then she arose. She's acting with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, here as we notice something about Naomi's faith, is you'll notice how the text so carefully places it to recognize Naomi is acting in faith. How so? Notice the detail of the text of how she heard that the Lord had visited his people, and that is she heard in the fields of Moab. In other words, Naomi heard rumor. And she attributed it to confession. In other words, it's hard to embrace. There was a Moabite next to Naomi, and the Moabite says, Yahweh has visited his covenantal people. But there's indeed evidence in the fields of Moab that Naomi heard the rumor that way. The rains had returned. Naomi contextualizes that as the narrator makes clear the Lord had revisited his people. This is Naomi's contextualization of the 
rumor about in the fields of Moab. Hey, we heard that the rains had returned to this area. For Naomi, in faith, her, eye, her ears perk up, and she says, the Lord has visited his people. The return of the rains for Naomi at this point in the tragedy means that the house of bread, Bethlehem, has been divinely restocked. Naomi interprets this event as a sure and stable sign that God is covenantally faithful. He has not forgotten or forsaken the people of His covenant. Word is, the reigns have returned to Judah. You mean, the Lord has visited His people. There's an abiding, abiding faith for Naomi. Let me read for you, as I did last week, the portion of the covenantal curse where we see, again, the Lord brings drought, or he calls for drought upon Israel's disobedience. Let me read for you exactly how Naomi perks up, hears the rains have returned, and she says, you mean, at least in her heart, Yahweh has visited his people. How so? Deuteronomy 28, and I'll read for you just a short portion. You don't have to turn there, simply two verses. As we speak of covenantal blessings, as Naomi speaks, this is what that is. This is that. Verse 11, and the Lord, uh, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Naomi had heard, indeed, that God had visited his people. This is a sure sign of the covenant that God has established. As we recall, in the calling forth for a drought, we ask, what's, how does drought function in the people of God? Much of this uh, is the way that signs covenantally work all across Scripture. That is, an external that speaks to the thing internal. So also, does the drought physically, externally, speak to the spiritual drought of Israel? They have forsaken Him. And he calls forth a drought. So when the rains return, it is the gracious work of God stemming the tide. There are three things here I wish to unpack for you as far as this statement goes, the Lord had visited his people. Again, this is not upon the lips of a Moabite. This is how Naomi is hearing the turn of events. Is that God is faithful. Rumor is turned confession. Now the accent of this statement, the Lord had visited his people. As Naomi speaks of providence, the accent is where you would think it is. It is upon the Lord. 
This is the people of God. This is how the people of God respond to mercy. It is the Lord who has acted. So Naomi, number one, she says, in that the Lord had visited his people, she says, number one, the Lord has acted in time to guide and direct the elements of nature for the purposes of salvation. I don't know if we assign such things to the nature, uh, to nature's categories of the Lord's work, that we see that even today the Lord acts in time, and He is indeed sovereign to guide not simply things unseen, but He directs even the elements of nature in the accomplishment of His purposes. Again, this is not new. Naomi isn't shocked by these realities. She hears simply that the rains have returned, and her response is, This is how Yahweh works. This is how God is faithful. Consider even for a moment if we charitably judge Naomi's understanding. Sharing yet again in that family with Elimelech, would we rightly perceive that Naomi knows her sacred history? I think we would share in the affirmative. Yes, indeed, as an Israelite, Naomi undoubtedly knew her sacred history. Well, then what are we pointing out in sacred history? That Naomi would see the rains and identify it as God's covenant faithfulness. Consider even just the biggest example we could perhaps point to if we both judged it so is Egyptian deliverance. God can direct and redirect and separate and move forward and withdraw all of nature's natural elements for the good of His own. Egyptian deliverance and the parting of the Red Sea, the provisions of the people of God in Moab, give us this day our daily bread. Naomi knew that the rains meant the Lord had acted in time on behalf of His people. The second consideration in this statement with the accent rightly upon the Lord has acted. But how so? What is the language that speaks of His action? It isn't a simple callous indifference. It is the language of visitation. If we were to translate this term out, visitation is adequate, perhaps we could press it a little bit more. If we consider it its semantic range, it is a bit broader or more intimate than just a thought of a visit. Yet visitation is relatively adequate. Nonetheless, the term captures the intimate portrayal that Yahweh has taken notice of Israel. And the visitation means coming to their aid. It's not simply, for Naomi, a serendipitous turn of events. She's not simply hearing in the plains of Moab, in the fields of Moab, in a foreign land, left alone, that the rains have returned, and she says, hey, how about that? 
Perhaps that's a Moabite expression, but it isn't Ruth's. It isn't Naomi's. It is, I know about that. Yahweh is merciful. That's what the rain means. He's visited his people. This is what Naomi says. This is what he has done. He has taken notice and he has come. And he has come in such a way as to bring aid and relief. This is not simply a turn of the wheel of fortune. It is the work of a sovereign Lord who can act in time and guide all elements that bend to his will for the provisions of deliverance to his people. Yahweh has come. He has taken notice and he has come with aid. Naomi is a broken woman. Yet she still is confessional. Yahweh has visited his people. The third thing that stands out, if we just simply took the proposition, the Lord had visited his people on the heart of Naomi. And we see rightly again the accent upon the Lord. The fact that he has visited. Not in a callous way, but he has taken notice. And in the visitation brought aid. And the final piece of this proposition is he's brought his aid to his people. Again, consider the context of the judges. And we might call into question that they are his people. It speaks not of the people and their merit badge to bring forth the rain. It speaks of the mercy of God to a disobedient and wicked people. They are still His people. Israel Again, not to walk back through the judges, but I hope we've covered that well enough. If not, simply look over on your, if your Bible is open like this, and you could probably see at the top of your page on the left-hand side, verse 25, and we can move on. We know the plight, the set of circumstances of Israel. It is a dark and calloused time. And yet, notice how Naomi speaks even of her own situation as she would peer into the life of Israel. Despite Israel's willful disobedience, it isn't like somebody else made us do it. There is no devil made me do it. They're willfully choosing to turn from Yahweh. It isn't indulgence by the hand of another that Israel is receiving. It is their own indulgence. And yet, rain appears. And Naomi says, Israel is still the object of divine sovereign grace. God's covenant grace for each and every one of us, his covenantal grace is irrevocable. He establishes it, 
He provides it. He nourishes it. It is irrevocable. Naomi sees this truth in the simple summary statement of the events that she's hearing by rumor in Moab. That it is Naomi who says, indeed, this reign is owing to no other work than the sovereign and gracious, merciful work of God. However, that doesn't summarize Naomi's life of faith at this point in this tragedy. We recognize that again, she arose her daughters to return. Why? Well, she, when she was in the fields of Moab, she heard a rumor. And this is her thought on that rumor. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. So what did she do? She set out to go there to the land of Judah. She heard it, she believed it, and she acted on it. But the question is this at this point as we further the narrative. Indeed, Naomi affirms, and perhaps this is like us. Naomi affirms that God is good. He is good. He is sovereign. He is capable. He is able. He is to bring aid and visitation when he comes is merciful to Israel. Do you see? To Israel. Maybe we ask that same question or, or we put forth that same response. We hear of the good things that the Lord has provided and is doing in the life of another and we say, indeed, he is blessed unto them. The Lord is good to them. But perhaps it is we still ask the question, is he good to me? I'm outside of that covenant. And a woeful spirit takes over. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm not experiencing that goodness. He's good to his people, but I, and, I'm, and we're a degree or two removed from that blessed sovereign grace. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He is merciful. But, you know, I've got a different walk with him. He is corporately, he is good to Israel, he is good to the church. Indeed, I affirm, but then there's me. So the question still lingers. Indeed, we see that Naomi's faith is present, and she affirms that it is Yahweh who is at work. It is the Lord on the move. He has brought aid, and he's done so for Israel. Do the blessings, in other words, do the blessings that are corporately provided to the covenantal people of God, do they apply also to Naomi? Where is she at in the narrative? Well, the next portion about the faith of Naomi as we consider Naomi's response, indeed, the first is affirmed. Her faith is present. It is abiding. She hears rumor and it's turned into confession. She knows her sacred history and the sovereignty and provisions of God. But the question is, where does she stand in those covenantal blessings? Where is she in the scope of this? And this I would submit to you as we move forward in the narrative. Naomi's faith, as we affirm, is present as displayed in this covenantal statement. 
but it is also, and we need to take careful note, it is weak. Great. The kitchen, they're preparing food for afterward. Um, perhaps this, again, well, the writer affirms really that it is each one of us. Again, perhaps at some points in our lives more than others, but faith does wane in every one of our lives. Naomi's faith is present, but it's weak. How do we see the weakness of her faith? Well, in three ways. The first one is we see the weakness of her faith. So it's present and abiding, but it's, it, it, it's, uh, the quantity is low. How do we see it? In the first, we see it in the prayer of blessing. Notice carefully as we read verses 7 through 9 in the prayer of blessing, recognizing the quantity, uh, how, how much faith does Naomi really have? Is it robust in that covenantal statement? Is she full of fervor and faith? Well, perhaps toward Israel. But maybe Naomi individually, personally, falls in the background in her own mind. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, again, Naomi is the concern. Don't miss that. It's not about the daughters-in-law. It's about Naomi. We're learning about Naomi and our own responses as we enter into the shoes of Naomi toward the work of God in our own lives. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. Notice the language of prayerful blessing. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as He has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. Notice the tone of Naomi's prayerful response. The prayer of blessing, in other words, is affected this way. May God bless you in ways that He has taken from me. Again, if we miss you and say, I don't think so. It doesn't seem to be that tone to me. It seems to be very kind. Notice the detail of the blessing she asks for the women. All the things that are removed from her. Go, get away from me. Hey, you, don't, you don't want to attach your wagon to me. I'm not going in a great direction here. Take notice, I'm alone. I'm, I'm headed back, but, but you don't have to. You, you don't, I'm not on my way up. You say, I'm not sure. Notice carefully, though. It is a divine reversal in the blessing that Naomi puts upon them. And this will prove it out at the end of the narrative. Stay with me at this point. Again, number one, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Again, perhaps a comment, but she also does say, as he has with me, we'll see that the tone of that language is not in the affirmative. As we see Naomi revealed at the end of the narrative, it is a way she instructs them, if you hitch your wagon to me, 
you're not going in a good direction. But Naomi, you just said that the Lord is sovereign, powerful, able to his people. But then there's me. Just go, each one of you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Secondly, may the Lord grant you rest. There is nothing about the situation Naomi is facing that would produce rest. Indeed, she is a woman in unrest. And the only way these women are to realize these blessings in Naomi's mind is, get away from me. Go, each one of you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Might you find rest, each one of you. Where? Where? In the house of your husband. That is, thirdly, might the Lord give you a family. We want to be with you, Naomi. You don't. Go. And she prays a blessing upon these women. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Might he give to you protection in the house of a husband? I lost mine. Remember? Elimelech's dead. And so are my sons. But might each one of you, under the Lord's kindness, find a different providence. Go. Might he give you that family that he has withheld from me. The weakness of Naomi's faith. Indeed, it is present but it is weakened. The second way in which I would put forward to you that we see that Naomi's present, her faith is present but weak is the response of the women. How does that speak to the faith of Naomi? Well, I think quite clearly it speaks of how indeed it burdens them to see Naomi in such plight, in such response. Look at, then she kissed them. She's giving them this this. Uh, this Uh, kind of a benedictory uh, pronouncement. Go, just be away. May the Lord bless you. Then she kissed them in this manner. They lifted up their voices and they wept. Notice she comes back in verse 14. Again, after uh, making clear what we're describing here about Naomi is that she is exceedingly bitter, so forth. We'll get there. But the response of the women is the same. They see in Naomi a broken woman. And they weep for her. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices again after hearing from the lips of Naomi. And they weep again. Her daughters see in her perhaps an abiding covenant, confessional faith. But it is weak and struggling. And they are deeply saddened. I would apply to each one of us that there is no virtue in being a John Wayne of sorts and going through Christianity and going through difficulty. I don't know if anybody even in here younger than me even knows who John Wayne is. Maybe a bad example. He's kind of like a, a, a picture of a Marlboro man. I don't know if that makes any sense either. <laughs> I don't even think there are a lot of run cigarette ads anymore. Either way, the idea is 
There is no virtue in being a tough guy and not letting others share in your burden and in your injury and your hardship and in your trial. Your tough chin isn't getting you merit badges. And do you see not only is it not currying strength for you to own your own burdens, but it hurts and wounds the people around you who love you. They see it. I'm fine. Go. Leave me alone. I'm going to be all right. Do you want to talk about it? Talk about what? It doesn't hurt just us as individuals. But in the hearts and lives of those around us, our church family, it burdens them as they watch you weep alone. This idea that it preserves them from entering into my burden and not having to bear it with me is a myth. They bear it in isolation from you because you won't let them in. They don't go on not thinking about it. They don't cease to care because you gave them the John Wayne attitude. They're hurting for you, either with you in presence or distant and apart. Your own individual choices of handling difficult providence hurts or helps and strengthens those around you. Newsflash yet again, even in hardship, it's not all about us. So it is, secondly, her faith is present, but indeed weak, as she responds to the women and they respond back with hardship and sadness. Thirdly, and this is my last point for us this morning, is again, as we examine Naomi's faith being weakened but present, is thirdly, I see it in the summary of providence in her life. I'll begin in verse, uh, uh, let's just read the whole text. I'll begin in verse 10. We'll go through and we'll see Naomi's response, which is the summary of how she's interpreting this providence. That the women present know because of their response to it, it is breaking them to watch her be broken. Verse 10, they said to her, no. We will return with you to your people. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, what, are you going to wait around? Are you going to wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, no, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do you see the interpretation of the providence? What do the women who love her see? They lifted up their voices and they wept again. Continue past at the verse 19 as we'll look at the next section next week of the other responses to the same providence. Verse 19 So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, 
is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now you have to appreciate that sense of fullness for Naomi. The referent has to be to her family. Her daughter-in-law is standing next. I don't know what this says about uh, mothers and daughter-in-law relationships. But um, maybe you should say that when Ruth leaves. I went away full. I came back empty. Except for Ruth. (laughs) You know. Naomi, we've all been there, blinded by circumstance. Simply blinded by circumstance. That kind of blindness comes from isolation, that once circumstance arrives, we bear it alone. Blindness ensues. We can't even see. Oh, God's good to Israel. He's good to you too. Naomi. I have one question to end with in our time together. For each one of us reading this narrative actively as participants. If Naomi has a faith that is abiding, but indeed it is a weakened faith, It's there, she's acting, she's going back to the covenantal land. But it is weakened. God is against me, not Israel. I ask you, is Naomi saved by the quantity or robustness of her faith? It's your theological quiz. Is Naomi saved? As we, as we conclude the narrative, is Naomi, are you saved by the quantity of your faith? Is the strength and the robust nature of your faith the cause of salvation and grace? I hope each one of you have screamed internally, Absolutely not. It is not, Pastor, it is not the quantity of my faith that abounds. It isn't its sure high points that brings me redemption and its low points that take it away. It isn't the strength of my faith that saves me. It isn't. Because I agree The saving nature of faith is never found in its quantity. When providence is hard and faith shrinks, that says nothing of your justification. 
Faith is never found in its quantity to be saving. But rather, faith is saving that has a quality. And that quality of one's faith that is what the Lord justifies in the ungodly is that it possesses Him as its sole and sure object. So no matter how dark, the object is the same. The quality abides, even if the quantity feels it's absolutely gone. The quality abides. And for as long as he remains resurrected, I too am saved in his resurrection. Thomas Brooks, I conclude with this quote. That I hope strengthens you as you consider your own faith in the Lord's gracious intrusions in your life. And as you look on for Naomi as she returns. A weak faith. Please, please hear. If I've babbled for 55 minutes, he says it 10,000 times better than I could. So if you heard nothing, hear this. A weak faith doth as much justify and as much unite a man to Christ as a strong faith. You see, as much it gives a man Weak faith gives a man as much title to and interest in Christ as the strongest faith in the world. He concludes beautifully. A weak hand may receive a pearl as well as the strong hand of a giant. For that is what faith is. It is a receiving of and a resting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as providence 